You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series. My name is Colm Waters and I'll be your host for the next half an hour or so. Now, you may or may not be aware that the library hosts live events within its building. We've been blessed to welcome through our doors any number of local and visiting poets who've read their work. Way back through the myths of time, when I was but one of the library's podcaster hosts, alongside J.L. Williams and Ryan Van Winkle, there was a plan to record and feature some of our events as podcasts. In practice, I think we only ever did that once, although we record most of our events for our archive. One day we'll put together a podcast featuring some of those great recordings. In the meantime, for this month only, the podcast currently swirling about your ears is not our usual interview format, but a recording of a reading held here in March. The poets featured are Nina Bogan, Owen Walls and Beverly B. Bragg. So as not to slow the pace down, I'll introduce each poet before an edited version of their set that night. To conclude the podcast, I've included an excerpt of the question and answer session we held after they finished reading their poetry. So, we start with Nina Bogan, who was born in New York City and grew up on the North Shore of Long Island. She attended Kirkland College and received a BA degree from New York University. Since 1976, she's lived in France, where she taught English and literature at the, and I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, at the University of Technology of Belfort Montbéliard until her retirement in 2017. She was a recipient of the National Endowment for the Arts Grant in 1989 and Grey Wolf Press published her first book of poems in the North that same year. Two books of poems followed, The Winter Orchards in 2001 and The Lost Hair in 2012, both published by Anvil Press and was described by Alison Brackenbury as comprising... Beautiful, spare, exemplary poems from which everything unnecessary is quietly stripped away. Here she is. So, the first poem I'm going to read is called... Makes sense, in a way. It's called Welcome. Welcome, child. Bienvenue. Welcome to all things as small as you. Poppy seeds, ladybugs, drops of rain. More than a thought. Less than a name. Your task is simple to become. But take your time, you've only just begun. Welcome to all that is slow, snails and stars and falling snow, sky and wind, tree and bird, and for each one a chosen word. The world is as old as you are new. Welcome, little one. Bienvenue. The second poem is the title poem of this book, and it is called Thousandfold. Thousandfold, the light encompasses us patiently against our mortal impatience. We are human, thus destitute. Awkward, we fumble with our small offerings to the everyday, crumbs, petals, dust. What do we sift over? What should we keep? What turn to gold, give thanks for, 
render a thousandfold to light. Feathers. Who can say whether my great-great-grandmothers in Galicia or Ukraine plucked goose feathers from snow-white geese held firmly on their knees? No one will tell me, but I can see them sitting on their stools with their wide laps and heavy skirts and aprons, their fingers plucking goose down and feathers for pillows and coverlets and eiderdowns, their faces worn as old linen. In voices I can almost hear, they gossip and exclaim about the nephew who left for America, the daughter-in-law who's barren, the husband who's pious, and the one who drinks too much, their words drifting across the courtyard into the autumn skies and clouds as smoke curls from the chimney tops and mingles with the odors of stored apples and potatoes, fresh cut wood and fallen leaves. Those grandmothers with their nodding heads and captive geese and baskets of feathers cannot for the life of them imagine that one day I will be sitting at a laptop straining to hear their voices on a winter's night in a house banked with snow and a fire burning down to embers. Fixed in my time as they were in theirs, I will try to imagine my great-great-grandchildren as distant from me as tonight's scattering of stars, and I'll wonder who among them will think of us, who will remember. Halloween. Little girl lavender, little boy blue, here's a pumpkin split in two, on each side half a grin, with some teeth out and some teeth in, a triangle nose and two wide eyes that wink at you, that wink at you. Here are two candles for you to light, one for each half of a Halloween night when long-toothed shadows flicker high and burn down low in pumpkins that keep watch until morning comes to windowsills. We can't stick the two halves back together, can't fix the marriage pact when it goes against the grain. What once was can't be again, a lesson it takes a lifetime to learn. Warm beneath your eiderdowns, you'll sleep through the night of Halloween in this house or the other, with your father or mother, and a harvest moon, only one, over the park, over the patio. Be at peace and know that a parent's love cannot be halved, but rather doubled, multiplied, so unwavering are the ties of the heart. As October steals into November, here are words for you to remember. Little boy blue, little girl lavender. Sleepless. 4 a.m. Sounds come in single file. One ring of the telephone, one tap on the roof, 
one bark of a deer in the woods. How I wish it would bark again, and that I could dream its animal sleep on a bed of leaves along the stream. Happiness has fled. Why does it make such a difference? Come on, take yourself in hand and make a shopping list instead. String to tie up the tomato plants, a paring knife, matches, a pen, candles and storm lamps for the times ahead. Dementia has seized our marriage by the throat, made us snap and snarl and spit, slap, shout, hit, heart pounds, door bangs, pace outside, let it settle. It's summer, it's beautiful. I pout, sulk, shrug, sigh, frown. Who is this woman I've become? The girl you married with long black hair, your honey-brown eyes, your voice, so warm, your trust, mine. It was good for a long time. Now your gaze is veiled, you wear someone else's smile. Your voice wobbles, anxious, edgy, your fidgety, crotchety. Where's my flashlight, my shoehorn, my book? Where did you put my cell phone, my glasses? And now I've lost my carte vitale, my carte d'identité. Yes, husband, your identity has been misplaced, mishandled, misshapen, slowly crumbling like your old ski boots we found years later that fell apart in our hands in an avalanche of powder. Owen Walls was born in Derry in Northern Ireland. He attended Atlantic College on the coast of South Wales and has lived and taught in Germany, Rwanda, Scotland and presently Northern England. He won an Eric Gregory Award in 2006, an Irish Arts Council bursary in 2009 and his work has been published widely in journals and anthologies throughout the UK and Ireland. His first collection, The Salt Harvest, was published by Seren in 2011 and was shortlisted for the Strong Award for Best First Collection. He teaches creative writing at Lancaster University and his latest collection is Pigeon Songs, which was also published by Seren. Still the Universal Blues. This time is a layered skyline of 20 shades of blue, with blue faces at blue windows under a bright blue moon. There's a blue girl in a room where the TV spills bad news across the bare arse of a man who did what he came to do. Blue is the deoxygenated blood in the lining of her cervix, as the white spunk headbutts the future in a frenzy of aquarobics. It is hard to whisper blues with him spread-eagled on the sofa, or to reckon every cell was once the heart of a supernova. This time is just a bell curve, with us swelling in the middle, watching our gas bills and P45s pile up on the coffee table. But the sperm is a mad sine wave in this universe of blue, and the egg is a tight blue nova, and once that egg was you. 
I lived in Scotland for a bunch of years and had to move out quite sadly about three years ago. Um, and I was always on the train, hopping up and down the train. The book's called Pigeon Songs, and a lot of it was written on the train between Kernesty and Lancaster, where I worked out. Sometimes when you're commuting, I'm sure you know, it feels like you're walk, walking through deadlands because you don't engage with anybody, and it's, it's, it's like a city of death. And if coming from Lancaster to Scotland, here's a tip. Um, if you're going to Kernesty, it takes the same time to go through Edinburgh or Glasgow. But Glasgow has a better pub closer to the station if you want to pop out for a pint while you get the connection. Anyway, this poem is about meeting my mother, who was a few years dead, in Glasgow on one of these commutes. The last connection. The way I came to get my next connection meant me hoofing it through central Glasgow on a night the city was populated by ghosts. Pale waifs and heels used flyers for protection from the rain. Blue couples had conversations in pizza parlor windows. I stormed the road, head down, collar up, trying to light a smoke, and nearly tripped into my mother at the station. I hugged her, damp. There was so much to ask her about miscarriages, our troubles buying a home, the taste of the earth. She listened to me, tender, but she had some place to be. I watched her go, zipping between the buses along Queen Street, and I caught the 941 for Aberdeen. I do like writing in uncomfortable places, and I know it's probably unhealthy, and I don't know how this one's going to go down because I've never read it. Do you know the myth, or the fairy tale of the Frog Prince? You know, it's such a perverted, weird myth. The daughter promises to sleep with the frog, to take him in her bed, and she says, actually, no, I've changed my mind, and the father says, you must. You must. You have sworn to this. You must do it. And he holds the daughter to her account and sends the frog to her bed. The whole thing absolutely bizarre. But this poem is called The Frog Prince and it's trying to think through such a, a bizarre reality or, or fairy tale reality. The Frog Prince. There is nothing that can be done in this green world about a boy with a stench of pond water in his burps creaking to your daughter's ensuite while she sleeps, where he stumbles upon a leak in his jellied sheath, and his eyes bulge like spawn dilating in a mirror, envisioning a foam of his own generational matter stewing inside her as tadpoles stew in shallow water, and the world darkens as he struggles to remember a story about a pond so green it was almost brown, and how the fern tips rattled as a frog pushed down past their pale roots, reaching the pond's rank bottom, where a golden ball blazed a nova in the pond scum, and it thunders outside, and a sudden thump of green webs the skylight and fractures, reddening at the seams, as beyond the curtains the suburbs bathe in a holy rain, frogs splattering on jeeps and bird baths in bony stains, as the middle class stare across their bloodied patios, and you skid off the tarmac, Trapped inside your Volvo, and on the bonnet, a lone frog is bellowing, unharmed, in a world cartwheeling with wild dogs and car alarms. And your daughter raises her head to ask, what is amiss? And the boy croaks, halfway between a ribbit and a kiss.
So our last poet tonight is Beverly B. Bragg. She is a poet, translator and critic. Uh, born in Canada, she lives in France today and uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, is that right? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Her second poetry collection, White Sheets, was a finalist for the 2012 Forward Prize and Hunting the Boar was a 2016 Poetry Book Society recommendation. Her translation of Apollinaire's The Little Otto won the 2013 Scotman Creef Prize her latest collection, The Hotel Eden, is a book about seeing the world. The poems move through Paris, the French provinces, and the American West Coast in the spirit of a flaneur alert to the variety and mystery of human experience. Yeah, I was born in Canada. Uh, I grew up on the west coast of Canada, Vancouver, and we're pretty Scottish there. Um, my ancestors all came from around Perth. And the epigraph to my book is from Douglas Dunn, the Scottish poet, who's one of my favorite poets. And it says, only a garden can teach gardening. The first poem I'm going to read is called Landline, and it's set in British Columbia on the coast, and it's about my dad. He disliked the phone, that hard-shelled crab hunkered in the den. If he had to pick it up, he'd say, hello, I'll get your mother, or your mother's on the other line, goodbye. Took me years to notice we'd never had a conversation on the phone. Retired now, he fished, gardened, read paperbacks borrowed from the library, the ones that make the time go by. He dreamed, yes, I think he dreamed. Visiting in summer, I'd catch him a tool dangling from his hand, staring at the mainland across Georgia Strait, as if he'd forgotten what he came out for. What's with the phone, I asked him. We were picking oysters. The tide was low. We could walk to the rocky outcrop. We called our island, my imagination's prime waterfront and origin. Stalking the tide line, a heron watched us warily. You only get so close before they bolt. He thought for a moment, then, half-jokingly, that was his way. Offering me an oyster, he'd shucked to slurp. He replied, I guess I'm afraid that when I pick up, there'll be somebody there. End of conversation. The tide had turned. Water was lapping the purple sea stars clumped in fissures favelas of mussels and barnacles. We sloshed back across the shingle with our bucket of oysters, the silence not uncomfortable. Now, a big switch across the world to Paris. Um, and this is um, a poem about the Luxembourg Garden, which is a big garden in the middle of Paris. And they have honey beehives in the Luxembourg Garden, and at the end of summer they sell the honey if there's any left over. So it's called the Fête du Miel. When summer is over, the beekeepers sell their excess honey to the neighbors. Is it the mythic precincts that give the savor to the honey from these hives? Or is it the pollution? Wishful thinking, the walls of our garden. Blackbirds sing, bees suck where they will on dog-pissed street trees, exhaust-fueled geraniums and ivies, as on the blossoms of an apple tree coddled by a Carthusian in a monastery. Last winter was so warm the bees thought summer never ended, the beekeepers write. 
on notices posted round the hives. All winter the bees were out foraging for nectar. Finding little, they consumed their reserves. There's no honey to sell this September. And then if we can do a quick zoom back to San Francisco or the San, San Francisco Bay Area, I have another honey poem about friends who are beekeepers. It's called Provisional. Stacked on the sill, gold through and through this morning's view. Six half-pint jars of eucalyptus honey. Friends arrayed last weekend on a small sidewalk stand. On a bright red cloth, August's heist of honey. And the world going by stops to talk and to buy, each a share of the bee colony's bounty. Quintessence of summer won't last until winter. Six lucid jars are provision of honey. This one's set in Paris. It's called The Lady and the Hollyhock, which is the Dame à la Licorne, the Lady and the Unicorn, in the Paris Museum of the Middle Ages. Yearly in September, moseying to the gym, I turn at the corner bookstore down to the museum where a courtly lady presides over a garden and its bestiary. It's a pretty vision. But I stick to the courtyard where hollyhocks have sprung from a seam of sand unraveled in the paving, flower after lusty flower blazing against the wall. They're party crashing here underneath that gargoyle. A hollyhock's a weed, good for a kitchen plot, guardian of small road or vacant thistled lot. Somehow someone allows to prosper in this spot underneath a gargoyle who's just a water spout. The next one is called Herbarium, or Herbarium. It's about a garden. In the south of France, uh, my husband is French from the south of France, and this is about the village where I think his great-grandfather originally lived there, and then the family kept the house, but they moved to um, Marseille, close places, but they'd go back to the house for summer, so eventually it became a, a vacation house. A walled garden with a low door, up to the cafe come grocery, P.O. and church, down to the brook and cemetery. In the middle, a mulberry tree offers shade from the summer heat. A clothesline is moored to its scarred gray trunk, and a white table rusting in the gravel with three slatted chairs, two of them broken, all needing paint. Everything is old and serviceable. That sheet drying on the line was stitched together from two of a great aunt's ones, worn thin in the center. Take that, says the hunter's shotgun, from vineyards ripe for harvesting. Buzz of a chainsaw, someone else repairing something. After the Quake. Uh, it's a poem set in China. I don't know if you remember, in 2008, there was a huge earthquake in um, Sichuan province where um, a school was destroyed, amongst other things. And afterwards, there were pictures in the newspaper. And this is a picture which you may have seen, which really struck me so much I wanted to write a poem about it. 
It was a picture of a little girl and her father. I guess I, I imagined it was her father. She'd been dragged out of the school. And she was holding in her hand an egg. So she was, her father was um, cradling her against his shoulder. And her hand was hanging down. And she had an egg looking very precarious in her hand. I saved this photo from the Times, Szechuan, 2008. A squandered child, cheek nestled in her father's clavicle. Jittery as wrens, the father's eyes record the aftershocks the paper can't contain. Dust films her pullover, the fuzzy one she wore to school today. Today? Today's this egg, snug in her palm, round and precarious as a belly full of child. Was the egg pulled from the rubble too? She's holding it, for now she's rescued and will keep it safe. And the last poem I'm going to read is called Winter Pears. And it's a poem in that village in the south of France. On the road that descends into La Roque, after the picnic table in the high-perched cemetery, a pear tree gnarls up from a farmyard, hoarding its pears. A sin to let these fat pears go to waste, so I knock at the farmhouse and ask, do they belong to the pears, and may we pick some? But the woman drying her hands on a tea towel smiles, no, not her pears. They belong, she points further down, the house we stopped at yesterday to read the handwritten warning tacked to the gate. Mon chien court les deux cents mètres en dix secondes. Si tu cours moins vite, reste au portail et sonne. Translation. My dog covers 200 meters in 10 seconds. If you don't run that fast, stay at the gate and ring. We ring. The dog comes belting. I snatch my hand back and wait for the lady of the house in plaid felt slippers. She's just fine with us picking some pears. Don't you eat them, I ask? A few, she hedges, adding, they're winter pears. They're hard, good only for cooking. This morning, breakfast done, I lift the pears from the top of the fridge and I sort them, the unblemished, the windfalls. I take the black-handled, paper-thin knife that has been in the kitchen for maybe a hundred years, the knife that brings to my mind the black-handled knives that Chardin places slantwise across his surfaces to give his paintings their illusion of depth. And I carve out the bruises, the fine bore tunnels of worms, I slice the fruit thinly until the white flesh is almost translucent. I arrange the slices in the new pot from Ikea. I burned the old one. Add a trickle of water and I leave them to simmer. Thanks a lot. So I've got a question for each of our poets. How do we judge a successful translation? Is it by fidelity to the source or whether a translated poem works in its own terms regardless of how faithful it is? For me, I like a translated poem to be faithful to its source, but I also like it to make sense as a poem in its own right. 
So I would say if you don't speak the language, a good translation is one that reads well in the language it's translated into English. If you do speak the language, of course, you're constantly going back and forth between the two, and you might hedge that bit. But I think in general, if you're just reading a translation that sounds good to you, then chances are uh, it's a successful, fairly successful translation. Nina, another question about translation, albeit of a different kind. I was reading a blog you wrote for the Carcanet website where you wrote, isn't that one of the primary rules of poetry, to put into words what we want or need to express, even or especially that which seems to be inexpressible? What techniques do you use to translate the ineffable into language? <laughs> Another very easy question. <laughs> we don't do easy questions at the School of Poetry Library. You should see what I've got for Owen. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. I really like the question a lot. I, I don't have techniques for one thing. It's, it's just something where the, the intention and finding the words that correspond. Now, it's a good question because sometimes words follow or a line forms in the head and I write it down and it, I continue. But sometimes the poem goes off sort of on its own bent and it takes it, so it takes a different slant and then, you know, I wrote it. I like it, you know, maybe. I look at it for a while and then I say, no, because that's not what I meant. That's nice. I don't take it away completely. I, you know, with uh, the today's computers, you can take it and I put it somewhere below. But it, it's there so I don't forget it forever, because I do use a computer to write. But so then I try to go back to what I really wanted to say. And then sometimes there's a poem that just goes off on its hmm. little own jog <laughs> and it turns into a poem but it might not be the one I meant to write. Owen, my dad was a pigeon fancier so I'm kind of fascinated by pigeons or fascinated by his relationship with pigeons rather than yeah. pigeons themselves. To me they're kind of mysterious and really ordinary birds. They're mysterious because you know how do they find their way back home? Yeah. But really ordinary because you see them everywhere and they crap everywhere too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is, it is. So what, what was it attracted you to outright pigeons? What do they represent to you? God, what a lovely question. The real answer, I'll say it in a second, but the, the, the steering towards that answer is that, you know, yeah, they've been with humanity. You look at the historical documentation of what was there in the city that we now think of as Babel and they had pigeons in the city that was in the poo of people who lived in the city now called Babel, or we think of as Babel. People were eating pigeons, it was a common meat. They've existed alongside humanity, it's the bird of love. There was an ancient Persian goddess of love, an ancient Roman goddess of love, and the pigeon was one of their symbols. So it's existed as long as humanity, and now it's current, it's existed as long as humans have, as long as the cities existed, Pigeons have mistaken the sheerness of buildings for the sheerness of cliff sides and moved into the cities and that sheerness has allowed them to nest. So the cliff sides at the beach where pigeons originally supposed to have lived, now they've moved into cities and they've totally dominated cities. But the real reason 
I love pigeons, is because they are horrible and ugly survivors. And that's what I love. They, what they do is fuck and live in any city. No matter how destroyed or bombed out it is, they don't die. They keep life in that city. And it seems to me so precious and so miraculous that, that life... Can you think of one other animal? You've seen more bruised than a pigeon. You go through Edinburgh Station. There's Palmer Road, but a pigeon in Edinburgh Station. And you know, they've got cancers in their face. They're missing all the toes in one foot. You, you've seen this. I'm sure you have. They are bruised and battered. And they look like they're dead, but they're alive. And they're hopping. And they're pecking at your McDonald's. And that cleverness to not die. That's all we can hope for. <laughs> That's beautiful. It's the same now. I'm, I'm not dead yet. And I'm still up for shagging and having more kids. Is that not a wonderful celebration of, of everything that we hold important? And that existed as long as we've been humans. But that, to not be dead and to still be shagging, I think that's holy. Well, that brings us to the end of another podcast. Some thank yous before we leave, uh, as tradition dictates. So, number one, thank you, dear listener, for listening. Next, let me thank our poets, uh, both for coming to the library and performing so well and allowing me to record the performance. The poets are, in order, Nina Bogan, whose latest book is Thousandfold, published by Carcanet. Then, next up was Owen Walls, whose latest collection is Pigeon Songs, which was published by Saren. And finally, Beverly B. Brack, whose latest collection is The Hotel Eden, and that's also published by Carcanet. So that brings us uh, right to the end. So uh, let me remind you that you can find out what the library is doing between podcasts on our website, www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. We also have a Twitter account, at By Leaves We Live. We have an Instagram account. I think that one's headlined or named SPL Scotland. And we have a Facebook page. Just type in Scottish Poetry Library. That'll take you to that page. And that's it. So I'll say goodbye and speak to you in about a month's time with another podcast. Hope you can tune in. Thank you. for downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.